This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. We are at the end of 2023. As always, it's been quite a year for our environment and natural resources. So today on the show, we're going to take a look back at the year past. Joining me to do that are the co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga, Wong Siu Lin and Lao Yao Hua, who will remind us about some of the big stories from 2023. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Thank good, you. Good. Fine. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for having us. Here we are, guys. I can't believe so. We're giving up our usual monthly uh, roundup. We're going to do a whole look back uh, at the year that was. Uh, lots happened as usual. Um, of course, you know, do go back and listen to all of our episodes from the year past. So much there as well. But we do want to focus on some of the biggest news, I suppose, yeah, that, that happened in 2023. So I think first up, let's talk about our ministry. So well, I guess now former ministry, of course. So the Natural Resources, Environment and Climate Change Ministry or the NRECC, which was, of course, led by Nick Nazmi, Nick Ahmad, right up till yesterday, uh, which is when the Prime Minister announced the restructuring of this ministry. It's now been split into the Energy Transition and Public Utilities Ministry. Uh, that's going to be led by DPM Fadila Yusuf. And now the new Natural Resources and Sustainability Ministry will be led by Nick Nazmi. Where has climate change gone? Not too sure. We'll tackle that some other time. But yes, Nick Nazmi, uh, a lot done by this minister and his ministry, you know, including the National Energy transition roadmap, among others. Um, you want to talk to us about some of the things the minister and ministry have achieved this past year uh, prior to this new divide? I think as far as um, ministries and, and ministers uh, are to go by, I think we have to give credit where credit is due. I think uh, this is definitely one of the better uh, environment ministries that we've had uh, in recent years. Uh, you know, And so we thought we'd just give a, a very quick shout out for, for all the positive things. Of course, there's a lot of things that need to be improved upon, that need to be implemented, as you pointed out, Juliet. However, uh, we thought, let's just start off with something positive uh, for, for the year roundup. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's look at NRECC, which is basically Natural Resources, Environment and Climate. And I'm just going to very, very quickly pick out some points that I think uh, you know, uh, kind of are worth mentioning, looking at the year behind and also looking ahead. So, uh, so let's start with the first, which is natural resources, right? Um, I, I think one of the things that uh, this minister and ministry have been very good about has been engagement. I think they've been very welcoming and very open to engagement with all sorts of stakeholders, whether it's in person or whether it's on social media. Um, you know, this is what we've been hearing, that he actually has been uh, uh, very open to all sorts of engagements. Um, so where natural resources is, is concerned, you're okay, so one of the things uh, that he has done actually is to reach out and be open to Orang Asli, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, is refreshing and it's, it's actually quite lovely to see. And in terms of, uh, I'm just going to focus on budget 2023, uh, basically with the uh, ecological fiscal transfers, that's been sort of more than doubled from 70 million to 150 million ringgit this year. And it's basically the funds that the federal government uh, give to state governments in order to do conservation work. Um, They've also agreed to compensate uh, any kind of communities or stakeholders who've been impacted by human-wildlife conflict. Again, this is you know, it's it's not a new idea, but it's the the fact that the ministry is doing, it, I think, is quite nice. Uh, Fifty million ringgit also has been allocated to raise the number of rangers who patrol our forest regions. So now we are going to have a thousand five hundred forest rangers, and again, this include local Asli communities as well as like uh, army veterans. 
So, you know, again, it's providing livelihoods. You know, you, you have all these people who maybe have retired too early mm. and, and let's let's have them look after um, our wildlife as well. Uh, the second point is environment, uh, as the ministry name is saying. Um, it's basically, uh, I just want to point out uh, that they're, they're looking and yes, this has been something that has been ongoing and has been dragging on for a long time is the Environmental Quality Act. Uh, so hopefully we're going to, it was, you know, some, some element of it was passed uh, last year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this year, if I'm not mistaken, but more needs to be done. There's still more consultations and stuff like that that are still ongoing. Um, and one of the ideas that's being mooted is that it's giving the Department of Environment the authority to appoint environmental impact assessment consultants for projects. Because currently, uh, these are being um, appointed by developers. Mm -hmm. So we had spoken about this earlier on, uh, and I think Yahua was the one who mentioned it, uh, and basically saying there's pros and cons to, to doing this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Certainly with pollution and fines and all that kind of thing, a, a little bit out of the remit of the ministry, uh, but the state um, uh, DOE officers and the heads uh, have been doing some quite sterling jobs. Uh, when it comes to pollution, for instance, yeah. Um, now we come to climate, which might arguably be the biggest kind of um, area that the minister and ministry have made an impact. Uh, and we have actually the, uh, the namely, you know, the the national um, roadmap for energy transition. Netter, I guess I don't know how you say it, yeah. right? Netter, yeah. They say Netter, yeah, that's right, yeah. So, so that's that's kind of like uh, that's part of an economic pillar actually for the government, which is good to see again that. Something to do with climate, uh, to do with energy transition, and the transition is away from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, that something like that is actually so so key to the economy of uh, Malaysia. Uh, we don't often have that. We have a lot of lip service being paid mm. to it. Uh, maybe lip service is too harsh a word, but perhaps not not enough is being done to make it actually an economic pillar. And I think the feeling is that it is an economic pillar. Um, it's very ambitious. They want to reduce the carbon footprint of energy production. So by 2050, no more coal. Um, and by 2030, I think, uh, you know, uh, sorry, by, by 2030, we are going to reduce our greenhouse gas uh, emissions. And uh, uh, basically, there, there are also plenty of challenges in terms of funds and technology. Uh, and recently at COP, uh, I think the minister was talking about just energy transition yeah. because, uh, you know, as activists have said, uh, green doesn't necessarily mean just. Yeah. Uh, so again, I want to come back to engagement with stakeholders. Uh, the ministry has appointed uh, climate change consultative panels. So you actually have a panel of non-profits, 25 non-profits basically giving advice, if you like, to the government. Um, and then you've got a panel for the private sector. Uh, one of the arguments against this is that perhaps there should have been a common one mm. um, so that, you know, everybody could work together and then you have a more holistic view or and, and therefore a, whole, a more holistic policy recommendations. Um, however, the hope is that there will be lots of consult consultative sessions between them. Yeah. Um, so one of the downsides, which was a big one, actually, uh, considering El Nino is coming and the haze is uh, going to come back worse than ever, is that they have put on hold the haze pollution plan, which um, I, I think some NGOs are very upset about. Okay. And I think that, that that might be all I have to say. So Okay. Okay, yes, quite an impressive list of achievements there. We do have to remember that he was only in that role, that the minister, Nick Nazmi, was only in that role for a year. And now, of course, with this new change in the ministry, with this uh, divide with two ministries now, uh, again, interestingly, the removal of the name climate change from it. Never mind, let's see what's in store for 2024 from both ministers. But yes, the work continues, of course. Um, now, let's turn our attention to, um, I guess, some of the work that states have done. So Pahang in particular, uh, we spoke about this in some of our wrap-ups as well. They've been doing 
doing a lot of uh, biodiversity cons- conservation measures they've been implementing. So uh, we, I think this was, we spoke about it in August, but in July, they uh, gazetted, uh, you know, lots and lots of land in Pahang for the Al-Sultan Abdullah Royal Tigers Reserve. Uh, they've done quite a bit. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this, I guess, is more of those um, positive news coming out. And so in, I think in the last two years, uh, we have seen uh, many more headline-grabbing action uh, coming out of Pahang in terms of environmental protection, you know, leaning towards environmental protection. Um, the biggest, I, I, I think one of the biggest news this year is, of course, the yeah, the Tiger Reserve that you mentioned, the Al-Sultan Abdullah Royal Tiger Reserve, uh, the first in Malaysia and also in Southeast Asia. Mm. Uh, but then there are also others, right? Like uh, the, the last year, there was the stopping of the mining in Tasichini and that continues to this year. And then there was also that... Uh, you know the 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 I guess the cancellation of the uh, proposed international airport on on Tioman. So I guess those are all sending out the, the the right signals. Of course, the question can be asked, like you know, why was those there was those projects in the first place? But anyway, so at, at, they, they stopped it in 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 the I guess in the namesake of environmental protection. Um, the Tiger Reserve is very I, I think it's very well um, worth talking about. Um, it's it was uh, gazetted. It's, uh, you know, the, the entire wildlife reserve uh, for the tiger is supposed to be 136,000 hectares mm-hmm. and already 93,000 hectares uh, has been uh, reclassified on, on in May into forest sanctuary for wildlife. So it's a class of forest reserve. It remains a forest reserve. And so that's already done in May. And then in, yeah, and then in August, um, it was regazetted into uh, Pahang State Park under the new Pahang State Park enactment, right? And the state government has announced plans to gazette the remaining 42,000 of a neighboring forest reserve also into that uh, wildlife reserve, and they aim to do that by 2028. Um, the point here is that why is it taking so long? Apparently, because they are still logging concessions. In, in that forest reserve that need to, you know, finish the logging concession before they can change it into a wildlife reserve. So the thing is that, you know, tigers, sometimes people do ask, like, of course, we know we have to protect tigers, um, but but really it isn't for tiger per se, right? And it's it's the idea that if you are able to protect tigers, which need a lot of resources to maintain and a lot of huge uh, habitat to maintain, if you're able to maintain their population, you know, conserve them, bring them back, that it would suggest that we have been able to protect a huge piece of healthy, you know, ecologically healthy uh, habitat, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's free from poachers. And, and so that's great. Um, and I, so I think tiger is either for symbolic reason or for real ecological reason. It's, it's definitely uh, an animal that we have to protect. Um, and there has been a lot of action in Pahang leading you know, to this and after this, also after the, the announcement of the Tiger Reserve, there was a, a Pahang Tigers Summit that was sometime in July. And, you know, there were a lot of people there uh, that attended. And it really reflected, uh, I guess, the cast of characters and all the effort that went into it. You know, there were, of course, uh, officials from the federal government, the state agencies, um, the, uh, the Sultan of Pahang and the Prince Regent, mm-hmm. and also many, many conservation experts and groups that were involved. You know, it, it was it was actually um, uh, it, it reflects the amount of uh, effort required. It was also there that it was announced that Pahang has 39 tigers. Um, and Pahang is supposed to, is supposedly the state with the most tigers. And, and so that's why they do that right now. So what's the uh, so one thing I was very curious about is like what actually is 
the goal or the KPI of this Tiger Reserve. Um, I think we actually know, I think the public know very little about it, like concrete stuff about it, right? And so there was a public forum in September, which I attended uh, on the Tiger Reserve. And uh, there were reporters in, in the audience and some of us asked, you know, like, you know, what's the KPI, you know, what's the goal for this Tiger Reserve? You know, you put all this money into it, such a big land, such a big space, you know, what do you want to do with it? Um, how, how would you know it's successful? The Pahang State Park CEO replied that, um, well, he didn't really actually reply my question. He just said that they're still trying to get the baseline together. But the, the other group, Pantera, which is, you know, uh, international NGO that studies and conserves wildcats, mm-hmm. uh, they said that, you know, they're also a partner in this whole project. And they said that their typical goal is to increase tiger uh, or wildcat populations on the ground by 50% across 10 years. So that would mean that, you know, 39 tigers now, 10 years later, you know, there would be 39 plus 20, 50, sorry, 60, uh, 60 right? 60, 60. tigers in, 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 in Pahang, or at least in, in their space. Uh, not, not, not exactly their space, but, you know, something like that in Pahang. So, so yeah, so I think for now, I mean, those are all going the right direction. A lot of people involved, a lot of work required, a lot of work being done. So I think we just really need a bit more transparency and a lot more of such forums uh, and that, that is open to the, to, to the public, that, especially to journalists, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did this forum was organized by the Pahang State Park? Uh, actually, I can't tell who organized this forum. There was, uh, you mean the public forum? The public forum I, I don't attended. remember who, who was the main organizer, okay. but there were a lot of people involved in this thing. Uh, it was actually at a bookstore in Pavilion. Um, there was a photography uh, gallery or right. exhibition. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then this forum was, was, was uh, you know, alongside that. Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, so yeah, a lot more transparency. You're right, you know, I never really thought about the KPIs. It's wonderful, yes, that this has this big gesture has been done, but yeah, then what, right? And who's going to keep, uh, keep tabs on it, I suppose, as well, right? What are the KPIs? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's something, again, that we uh, definitely need to keep an eye out. Let's just go for a quick break, guys. When we come back, let's tackle some other big news. Let's look at oceans for, uh, after we come back from this quick break. I'm speaking today to Lao Yao Hua and Wong Siu Lin. They are the co-founders of Makaranga. It's our wrap-up for 2023. We're looking at all the big news uh, concerning the environment from the year past. We'll have more after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. On the line with me today, Wong Siu Lin and Lao Yao Hua. They are the co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga. It's our annual wrap-up. We're looking back at the year past. We're looking back at the, some of the top environmental news uh, concerning our, yeah, well, well, of course, our environment, our natural resources, the climate, all of that. So before the break, we tackled, you know, some of the things that the ministry in charge of all of this, uh, some of their achievements and some of the things that they need to prioritise for the coming years. Then we also spoke about Pahang. Uh, seeing a lot more biodiversity conservation measures, you know, specifically the Tiger Reserve, also Tasit Chini. Now let's turn our attention to the ocean. Um, so, uh, Sulin, you were telling me how there's more uh, marine protected areas, right, uh, being proposed. There's a huge one in Sarawak, as we heard. They're also doing a huge one, not just uh, for terrestrial, but also for marine protected areas. Uh, what are some highlights uh, when it comes to our oceans? Yeah, so just picking up on what you mentioned about the Sarawak Marine Protected Area, it still hasn't been gazetted, but I know they're working very hard. They've been working very hard this year to establish basically what is the largest MPA in Malaysia. Uh, It's basically an area that is virtually 
all along its coast, you know, and it's got a long 750-kilometer uh, coastline. Uh, and the, the total area is supposed to be about 16,000 square kilometers of sea. This is massive. Uh, but the way they're doing it is basically for many years, in fact, uh, as, since 1998, uh, so the state has been dropping what they call reef balls, which are these giant concrete balls, I guess, you know. Uh, the main uh, reason for doing that is to deter illegal fishing um, and to protect artisanal fishers who like fish much closer to the shore. Uh, however, they are purportedly very good for increasing marine biodiversity as well. And, and so with, it, with that, with those in place and with the additional protection, I think it will, uh, it actually means very good news for the marine ecosystem. Um, so basically, uh, that's you know, we call out the states that do a good job. So we've got Pahang for terrestrial, and then now we've got Sarawak for marine. Um, however, on the west coast of Peninsular Malaysia, that's that's a, you know, the waters there are not like nobody goes there because there's no like lovely islands and stuff like that. However, the marine parks, um, the uh, you know, division of the uh, fisheries. Uh, department have actually been working very hard to try and identify and gazette um, areas of special biological and ecological importance in the Straits of Malacca, which nobody would think of as, as areas that have very high biodiversity. Yeah. Um, but they have been doing lots of studies and lots of research, and uh, they've actually gazetted uh, three marine parks in Malacca. Uh, which is very good news. Uh, unfortunately, there's also plans to do massive reclamation along the coast of Malaya. Just about to say, <laughs> yeah. yes. Uh. So, that, so it's going to be interesting times for how um, these two kind of like you know they're going to be negotiated. Um, and the other thing that happened this year was the Marine Parks just finished a study on Selangor, and basically they've ID'd some areas that really need protection. And we have actually again, you wouldn't think of Selangor as being a biodiversity hotspot, but they have, for example, ID'd uh, what they call the polychaete reef, um, which is basically tube worms, and it's it's marvelous. I mean, you've probably seen it, and you're not known what it is, you probably think it's like rocks or something like that. But um, so far, and that doesn't mean it's it's absolute, it's the only polychaete reef in, in the whole of Malaysia. Wow. So it would be marvellous if it were and if it actually gained um, uh, protection. So that would be very nice. Uh, the other thing that Selangor is doing, and we had spoken about this before, is they are doing a study on ICCA um, use. They're exploring the concept of ICCA, which basically looks at the conservation of waters and coastal areas that have been traditionally used by especially indigenous uh, fishers. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very interesting because this concept has not been applied to any sort of land, uh, Orang Asli lands at all. Um, and imagine, I mean, I, I think it's very interesting that the marine parks, uh, people are actually looking at, at, at uh, doing this sort of thing. Um, then for the rest uh, of the marine area, a lot of uh, ideas have been floated around a lot of frameworks like the blue economy, um, you know, they're looking at blue carbon. We know that the Bursa Carbon Exchange has come on board and def they are definitely looking at uh, coastal areas and marine uh, ecosystems as ways to, um, you know, that, that they need protection. And these could actually be very interesting projects for, for this sort of carbon trading. Uh, and this is because uh, seagrasses, mangroves, uh, we do have salt marshes here as well up in the north, uh, as well as sort of rocky shores. I think that's a kind of a new thing. They are very, very good at sequestering or storing carbon. And basically what you want to do is to 
keep them in place, but you also need to rehabilitate them. Mm -hmm. And uh, an opportunity is being presented through the use of carbon trading. And that's that's something that, you know, I mean, uh, talking to ecologists, they, they say, oh, my God, you know, we're being inundated by requests, uh, you know, for for, for blue carbon kind of uh, projects, you know, and, and basically there isn't enough data. There is there are about probably seven projects where they're trying to get data of how much our mangroves or each patch of mangroves are able to sequester carbon, but it's it's far from done, it's far from ready, and they're trying to stave off all these very enthusiastic um, organizations who want to trade uh, use this to trade carbon. Okay. Well, they, they should go definitely uh, wrangle these uh, corporations for money to do so much more of the research. Exactly. Like you know, the graduate students give them five thousand a month. Uh, I bet you get a lot. Of, uh, I, 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 would, I would. You would do it, wouldn't you? <laughs> Sign us up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so that was uh, that was our look at the uh, at our oceans. Uh, now moving on to something that we we discussed quite a bit as well throughout the year: rare earths, right? Big business for countries, of course, with reserves like ours, billions and billions, right? Uh, yeah, well, we were talking about it a few months ago, but again, the conversation also needs to go about how is Malaysia ensuring transparency, accountability in the rare earth industry? You know, how are we balancing those economic benefits with the environmental costs of rare earth mining? Right? You want to tell, uh, remind us yeah. about that? Definitely. So rare earths um, has definitely been grabbing headlines uh, this year, uh, not just in Malaysia, but worldwide, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it will continue to do so. And the, the surge in this interest is, um, I think it's because, you know, as we get closer and closer to 2030, uh, then of course, there's the momentum for all the green technology to reduce our carbon footprint. And rare earths is, you know, one of the essential uh, materials uh, for uh, building the uh, you know the, the the wind turbines and also uh, electric vehicles, right? And and why does it matter to Malaysia? Is because yeah, we have we have this uh, big reserves of um, rare earths uh, in in Malaysia, and in in some way even without this rare earths reserves in Malaysia in our soil. Malaysia already has quite a big say over the rare earth supply chain, probably more than we have uh, in terms of the global oil supply chain. So 10% of rare earths you know, uh, being used in the world passes through Malaysia through the Linus um, refinery in, in Pahang. So that's like 10% of the global rare earth supply chain. We definitely don't you know, have 10% of the world's like oil you know, being refined and processed here. And I think there are two significant events that happened this year uh, with regards to rare earths in Malaysia. The first is that, you know, in when when uh, YB Nick Nasmi replied in Parliament that Malaysia has about eight hundred and nine billion worth of rare earths in our soil, huge number, right? And so that that I think that just sent like a, a wave across the country. Um, and then the second was that when. Uh, it was announced that Linus can Linus Malaysia can now continue its operations here, right? Uh, after it has apparently, you know, convinced the federal government that it's uh, it has found a way to render its waste non-radioactive. If you recall, you know, it was supposed to Linus was under the condition that at the end of this year it can no longer, uh, you know, process its 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 uh, materials here that produce radioactive waste. But then uh, now he has been able to continue. So those two events. So let's talk about the first one first. You know, 809 billion worth of rare earths. And 
uh, of course, in the end, we will only be able to mine a part of that, but still, it's huge enough and it explains why it has grabbed the state governments and the federal government's uh, attention across, uh, you know, throughout the year, we get, you know, the, the, the heads of, you know, various states coming out and say, oh, we have, you know, how much billion of rare earth worth in our state, you know, there was Kerda, there's Para, uh, and then I think Nagaris and Milan also said it. And then most recently, Penang. <laughs> Penang yeah. also came out and said, oh yeah, we have all this rare earth. Oh, so what are we going to do about it, right? And so, and, and the state governments are, are really pushing for the federal government to release that, you know, to publish that national minerals policy too, and a set of national SOP for mining rare earths. You know, neither has been published uh, yet. I mean, there have been various drafts already. And... So yeah, and, and the federal government definitely realized this is a, as a, what they call a high growth, high value industry. Now already there's a pilot test uh, of mining rare earths in Malaysia using a method called in-situ leaching. Um, and the pilot test is being done uh, in, in Perak near Greek, right? And we wrote a whole story about that. So, you know, re, uh, your listeners can, can go read it on, on Makaranga. The gist of it is that we, we calculated that, you know, the 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 amount of revenue that the parasitic government got from that pilot test from that small piece of land is 12 times more than they would get from dogging so again there's a huge financial incentive there now this method of mining called in situ leaching it it doesn't uh, involve a lot of excavation so that you won't get those huge pits so in a way it is environmentally safer but there, of course there are other concerns like uh, risk of contamination of um, underground water Right, and, and contamination of the soil from the chemicals that they use. Um, so, so NGOs have been voicing out very strongly against uh, mining rare earths uh, in the country. Uh, they're calling, they're questioning whether there is any possibility of sustainable mining, right? They're, they're already questioning the term itself. Um, and so that's that, uh, but it's, it seems like it's definitely going to go, going to go on, the rare earths uh, mining. And so... Uh, we all just have to keep an eye on it. Really, um, look at the policy when it's when it's released. Look at the guidelines when it's finally released, and then uh, keeping them accountable. I mean, that's our job. And as for Linus, <laughs> as for Linus, this is an ongoing saga more than ten years now, on and off, on and off. Right? It's like a it's like a, a tug of war between you no know, political will. Uh, social uh, perception and then scientific evidence, right? And now the way Linus does it process that there are there are here is that it, it it would it would leave behind a radioactive waste and it's radioactive because the waste you know this is like a lot of this solid waste it contains an element called thorium and it's radioactive and this has been you know the 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 crux of the uh, protest against uh, Linus operations here and. For you know the the the, the present government has uh, has continued its uh, its I guess its policy of uh, wanting to keep the the environment safe in terms of uh, liners and you know they they've set conditions for liners to stop importing the the materials and no longer producing the waste here um, and that seems to be quite the way it will go until suddenly I think it was. Uh, uh, a month ago in, in November, uh, when suddenly, yep, it was a U-turn and then apparently Linus and researchers in UKM have found a way to extract thorium out of the waste and thus render this, you know, this like 
tons and tons tons of solid waste, non-radioactive, yeah. but isolate the thorium uh, and keep it elsewhere. Then it can be used in the future. Again, of course, uh, environmental groups were again questioning this. You know whether this method, you know, you, you have done it in the lab. Is it now feasible in the field? I think that's a very valid question. So that is what we have to see, really. Actually, this this way of looking of extracting thorium from the radioactive waste is not something. It's not a new concept, really. Even when I first wrote about Linus in 2019. I mean, researchers in Malaysia have been telling me that, oh, it is such a uh, waste if we cannot use the thorium inside there. And so it's uh, it's something that has been tried and, and thought of for quite some time. Um, so yeah, but but one thing that's good about this whole is that, you know, in, in, in mid-November, uh, the environmental NGOs that were objecting against Linus operations actually held a public forum where the government agencies were on the panel and they explained how they came to the decision. I, I didn't attend the, the forum, unfortunately, uh, because of, of other commitment. But I think such conversations need to go on. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then uh, let's just go for one more quick break. Uh, when we come back, let's t- uh, tackle two more big stories uh, from the year past. I'm speaking today to Wong Siu Lin and Lau Yaohua. They are the co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga. We are doing a look back at some of the top environmental news from the year 2023. We'll have more after this one more quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It is the end of 2023, so we are looking back at some of the top news uh, concerning our environment, of course, from the year past. Helping me to do that are the co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga, Lau Yaohua and Wong Siu Lin. So, yes, we're giving up our usual monthly roundup, so we're doing a whole look back at the year. Uh, so far, we've spoken about you know what the uh, NRECC has done. We've spoken about some good measures by uh, local states you know, in terms of biodiversity conservation. We had a special focus on Pahang. We looked at oceans, more marine protected areas, Sarawak leading the uh, the case there. Uh, we also spoke about rare earths just uh, just before this break uh, and how a lot more uh, scrutiny, I think, needed on what's happening there. Now let's look a little bit uh, international. Um, we do know that on the 29th of June, the European Union's new regulation to curb the EU market's impact on global deforestation and forest de- uh, degradation, uh, otherwise known as the EUDR, the EU Deforestation Regulation, came into force. Right? So why range of products uh, covered from beef to books. Um, but of course, I think palm oil was the one of particular interest uh, for Malaysia. You want to just remind us about that? Yeah, so this you know, um, EUDR would definitely be, uh, it has again grabbed a lot of headlines, uh, has registered a lot of conversations uh, and it will continue to do so uh, next year. The EUDR, it was passed um, in EU and came into action on 29th June this year. And basically, it, it says that it has a list of commodities and, and their products. And it says that uh, the whatever that is on this list, you know, um, if it was made with materials that originated from land cleared of forest uh, after 2020, then these products and the commodity cannot be imported into EU or exported out of EU. So the list includes palm oil, timber, rubber, cocoa, soil, you know, several stuff, and also their products, which would, which would mean that tires, furniture, and you know, any oil made from you know, palm oil, rubber, or, or, or timber, 
that was produced from land cleared of forest after 31st December, no, nope, you cannot enter EU or, or come out of EU. Um, it, the law was passed uh, in June, but there is a buffer year uh, period for the companies and, and countries to you know get their policies and, and get their you know to, to, to meet the regulation. So the actual implementation would be starting January 2025. So, okay. so, so, so that's why there's a lot of talk, a lot of action on the ground now to, to meet this regulation or to somehow work with the EU regulators to find ways to, to make the regulation work. Because although you know it matters a lot to Malaysia, as you said, for the palm oil, but it also matters a lot for rubber and for timber. We don't hear too much about the rubber and timber. We just hear a lot from the palm oil sector. And that's because I think there's a, probably a lot more money in the palm oil sector. Mm -hmm. um, but there, we, we must not forget there's also rubber and timber that will be affected. Okay. And what this regulation does, uh, I mean, it imposes on the producers and the importers, uh, the operators, is that you have to prove that the product that you are you know, uh, importing into EU or exporting out of EU is deforestation free. Yeah. So all parts of it, all along the supply chain, you know, people are saying that, oh, you know, we can don't sell to EU, we can sell to China. But yeah, but if your buyer in China wants to make a furniture that they want to sell to, for example, France or Italy, they can't, right? Unless you're, unless they can prove that the timber from you in Malaysia is also deforestation free. So that means that all along the supply chain, uh, they have to prove you no, know, they have to show where the products come from. They have to show all this due diligence, a lot of reports and stuff. So there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of uh, geolocation coordinates of the land that needs to be done, right? Yeah. And so the so right immediately you can think, wow, this is so much work, right? Especially for smallholders. And so that is one of the main uh, protests from Malaysia and Indonesia. You no, know, they, 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 Malaysia and Indonesia both produce 84% of the world's uh, oil palm, palm oil, sorry, and they have band together to call, you know, they, they describe the EU as, um, as a protectionist measure and as a discrimination against uh, oil palm producers using the, I guess, the guise or, or, or the disguise of uh, environmental sustainability. Mm. They're saying that it is uh, unfair uh, our countries have done a lot to make palm oil production a lot more sustainable, but you keep shifting the goalposts. And also, it's also unfair to impose such high uh, requirements for smallholders. And smallholders in Malaysia and Indonesia produce 40% of our palm oil, right? So it's actually going to be very difficult for them to meet the EU regulations uh, requirement. Mm. So... So there's still a lot of talk and there is a lot of uh, what, what's coming out of the news and what's coming from, you know, my interactions with uh, the industry and also, I guess, um, the, the the regulators, people who are involved with the regulation, is that there's a lot of talk now uh, between the countries and the EU regulators to try to see whether certain certifications uh, can work uh, to really meet these regulations. So far, the talks I've heard is that it doesn't. It doesn't mean that if you have RSPO, you automatically get, you, you automatically go into the green lane mm. for EUDR. Okay. Uh, but they are asking that, oh, we should also try to do it for MSPO. So there's still a lot of talk. Um, so now the challenge really for everyone involved is to first understand it <laughs> and then um, to, to see how we can meet it. Because definitely 
if Malaysia and, and Indonesia really somehow you know, give up and, 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 and boycott this EUDR or something, then the EUDR itself would, would, would fail, right? Because it doesn't serve its purpose mm. of uh, making their consumption deforestation free. Yeah. Yeah. Would the primary responsibility lie with the company placing the product in the EU market based on what you Correct. understand? Correct, yes. Yeah, so it's it on the operator. So yeah, so if you are importing into EU, it is your responsibility mm. to make sure your whole supply chain is deforestation free. Okay. Of course, but in the end, of course, the, the duty of doing that will, will come to the... On the, the first, the primary producer. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So, oh, that's a huge one there, huh? Just uh, yes, Yulin. Sorry, you wanted yeah. to say something. No, I, I was just going to say that actually, I, I was just uh, looking up this report that I had read earlier, which basically says that I think uh, a lot of the big and medium-sized uh, oil palm firms say that they can actually meet the EUDR specifications. They've got okay. what it takes, you know. However, as uh, Yohor pointed out, right there, so the, the the way the UEDR is being rolled out is is actually still very nebulous. There's still things that need to be you know, they need to know what is being regulated. Uh, they need to know assessment, like how are they going to assess this? Who's going to do the assessment? You know, uh, who decides who the assessors are? That sort of thing, you know. So so all these things, as uh, Yawa says, they, they, they kind of need to be worked out, you know. But the, the, the thing is that, well, traceability has always, always been an issue. It continues to be an issue. And if you go down to smallholders, it's it's virtually impossible. Uh, not 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 that it is impossible. It's just, it's going to cost money, and where's this money going to come from as well? Mm. And I was I was reading like you know even there's potential fines, right? If there's yeah, if they're found to be in uh, contradiction of these these laws as well. So who's yeah who who gets fined? Well, yeah, it's so hard. It's quite complicated. But okay, all right. So that's that's a huge one there. Okay. Uh, now just looking onto our last uh, our last topic for today. So that's uh, climate impacts on food security. Student, we just very recently spoke about that uh, heirloom rice, of course. Uh, and Yahua earlier we spoke uh, earlier this year we spoke about El Nino. Uh, we spoke about you know how our dam levels were in critical uh, condition. Uh, but we did also uh, we had someone from the ministry as well who said maybe it's not as bad as we think it is. You want to just remind us about that. So then you want to go first? Sure. So uh, food security, rice shortage, that's what we've uh, felt most uh, most uh, recently uh, compared to like chicken and eggs. And it's just like one thing after another. Not to mention the price, so right? So yeah. Yeah. And the prices as well. Well, even if you can get it. So I think, you know, like some, uh, there was basically a mad rush for rice, uh, you know, and, and basically it's it's things like, you know, so in the news, it's been incessant rainfall in the West, drought in the East, uh, a 13% lag in areas under paddy. And all this is not here. This would all happen in India. And therefore, India banned white rice exports in July and then uh, slapped on an additional export tax on parboiled rice exports in August, right? So what India does, it hits the whole world because they account for about 40% of global rice trade. So basically, you know, their rice, uh, whatever was being exported, started going up. And then that imported, that uh, basically... Um, you know, had a ripple effect on all rice because when the rice price goes up in one place, the whole world is affected. Uh, and 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 basically, it's like then comes the issue of can you even get the rice if you have the money? Can you even buy the rice, right? Uh, because it's just not available. So basically, extreme weather it's hit India. Uh, let's not forget it is also that's not been very big news happening this year, but it continues. Uh, extreme weather continues to impact our, our rice production. Um, and it's not the only thing 
it's in addition to things like poor soil fertility, nutrient management, um, you know, even hesitancy against using genetic, genetically modified planting materials. Now, most of our rice, uh, you know, uh, is actually uh, rice varieties that's commercially planted in our huge granaries is actually produced by Mardi, right? And, and they've been working very hard, actually, uh, to, to try and figure out uh, rice strains that can withstand climate impacts. That's the big thing now. We really need to focus on that sort of thing. Um, and, and so right now we are trying to go for, Malaysia as a whole is trying to go for a self-sufficiency level of between 67 and 70%. Uh, sorry, we are trying to go for 80%. We are currently at between 67 and 70%. Uh, different states have different self-sufficiency levels. And Sarawak's last year fell to 34 so that means we're importing a, a lot of rice and what's going on in terms of producing enough rice, right? Um, and climate is just a, just a very, very big thing. The other thing, yes, that we just talked about is really the availability, availability of seed diversity. Yeah. So you need to have a lot of different strains of rice so that you can look for the traits that enable new rice varieties to be able to withstand the big climate impacts, which are basically drought, um, uh, immersion, right, from floods, as well as saltwater intrusion. And that's because a lot of our paddy fields are in coastal areas, and already it's happening in, in Kedah for sure. Um, you know, the, the saltwater is coming up because yeah. of rising sea levels. Yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that you know we were speaking about uh, also on the uh, the topic of water, right? Water shortages. Our dams were at critical levels. Uh, you want to just remind us about you know the weather patterns and how what all of that plays in all of this. Yeah, well, what do we have to say about the, <laughs> <laughs> the climate crisis and the weather pattern? Um, it's, 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 you know, weather is a, it's a day-to-day, month-to-month thing, right? And uh, climate is over, you know, um, 30 years kind of thing. And, and the data clearly shows that Malaysia um, has been warming up uh, since the 1950s. And it's quite clear that uh, our, our temperatures are rising. Uh, this year, of course, has been very hot uh, globally and definitely in Malaysia. Uh, a few months ago, uh, when we ran uh, two stories on El Nino and we looked at the weather data in Malaysia, we found that uh, since 1950, nine of the 10 hottest years uh, in the country happened after year 2000. I think with this year, I think it would be 10 of the 10 hottest years all happen after year 2000. So it's definitely getting hotter. When it comes to rainfall pattern, which is of course, again, very important for our food security, the the patterns is a lot more erratic, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that when you get El Nino year, then you definitely get uh, a much drier year or that in El La Nina years, you will get uh, much wetter years. It isn't always so uh, guaranteed. Uh, unlike temperatures. Mm. Uh, but what is, is quite certain is that uh, we will get more severe uh, weather patterns, more drastic weather events. Uh, when it's a drought, it will be longer and drier and hotter. When it's uh, you know rainy season, you know you get more severe floods. And uh, the so uh, how you know in and and we have a glimpse of that a few months ago when some of our dams uh, were drying up. You know, uh, not a lot, not to the point that you know we need like a nationwide or statewide water rationing, but enough to worry our water commission into uh, 
establishing a war room, which is I think is very good, like a war room to coordinate uh, what, you know, water supply and to monitor the situation. And they made it public. I mean, it's a public facing uh, data interface where we can go look and you know, check daily, you know, which dam is, is decreasing. Um, yeah, but, and there were times where they had to do cloud seeding also. Uh, but uh, a few months after, now they stopped maintaining the, the war room data. Um, I think perhaps they see no need to, because the concern has passed and the dams are not really drying up now. Uh, of course, not now. I guess we have we are, we are having a lot of rain now, and now the 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 concern has switched over to floods and uh, heavy storms. So is this um is this idea that when we think of global warming and climate crisis, sometimes we we mistakenly think that it always get drier. Actually, the the guaranteed concern is that the weather will get more severe, like drastic events will become more common and more severe. So that's the guaranteed. No, that the thing that we can we can really expect to happen. Whether it always get you know hotter in certain parts, uh, that's a lot harder to say. Yeah. I was just going to add uh, this this other element as well. You know, like humans have to work outdoors. You know, and and people are worried about things like rice or you know like uh, especially food crops and stuff like that. You know, but but humans have to work outdoors, and when it becomes so hot, it becomes really really difficult to work. Uh, you know whether you're construction, you're doing construction, or whether you're working in a, a oil palm, you know area or, or anything like that. So that whole human element is is actually in there and actually affects productivity and therefore the economy. Yeah, and um, it comes back to uh, impact human health as well, right? And human well-being, it all comes back to us as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, guys, thank you so much. You know, uh, for for that wonderful roundup, and you know, for all the roundups we've done uh, in 2023, we'll be back, of course, in 2024. But uh, you know, in the meantime, folks, do head to makaranga.org if you'd like to read all the articles uh, that Sulin and Yaohua have published through the, throughout the years. Uh, if you want to listen to some of our podcasts, of course, uh, you just need to head to bfm.my/earth or head to the BFM app. Just search for Makaranga wrap up, and you'll find all of the things that we've done over these last few years. My thanks again to both my guests. I was speaking to Wong Siu Lin, Lao Yaohua, co-founders of environmental journalism portal Makaranga. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.